Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. So, I just want to say our house purchase. We are still keeping our fingers crossed. If you've been listening to previous episodes, you'll know that we are in the process of buying a house and we found a super duper house that we love very much and we put an offer in and the offer's been accepted and now the solicitors are supposed to be doing their solicitoring, whatever that involves. Um, It's a little bit vague to me and we are just keeping everything crossed. Now there are three very considerably large issues <laughs> that have appeared in the purchasing of this house. Um, so we're just waiting to find out. They involve very, in a very vague way, boundaries, discrepancies in boundaries, um, the names which are on deeds and right of way to the property. So it's a pretty, any one of these would be a pretty considerable thing to sort out. And the prospect of three of them is really daunting but we really 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 love this property and especially its location and where it is and the opportunities that it offers us in terms of training the dogs so we're just going to do all we can to make it work really but anyway that's a little update on the house because i haven't mentioned it in the last few episodes you might all be wondering what's happening as soon as we've actually paid our deposit then we're kind of committed to this purchase i will reveal which country we're moving to um I think a few people have already guessed that, by the way. But anyway, all right, so let's get on and talk about some gundog stuff. Hold the line. So in this episode, I thought I'd talk a little bit about, well, HBRs and bringing things together, as it were. So I've had quite a few questions from people about things like, well, the nitty gritty of hunting and whether you train this first or that first and how this bit fits to that bit. And I think sometimes what can happen is we go into a lot of detail about how to train a particular behavior, like, I don't know, the remote stop or um, the retrieve or something. And then people don't really understand how it all fits together and what the sort of macro overview of the whole thing is and how to approach training that in, in a sort of bigger picture way. So that's what I thought I'd talk a little bit about in this episode. I guess there might be some points of um, relationship and... Uh, comparison with spaniels or training of spaniels because they also do the hunting bit and the retrieving bit so you might find some some nuggets in there as it were um i'm not sure about retrievers whether they're going to get much out of this episode but if you want to understand more about how hbrs work and that kind of thing then this is the episode and by the way in north america 
you call HBRs versatile dogs, or sometimes they can be called bird dogs, but they're sort of the continental breeds that do it all, as it were. So, you know, your Vigilio Weimarana, your GSP, your German Weihair Pointer, your Deutschdrachter, um, those kinds of breeds. So, um, all right, so let's talk about those things. I would say, though, before I get into the nitty gritty here, that it's a little bit of an art form and that I don't want this to sound like too much of a recipe because a good trainer can adjust what they're doing to suit a particular dog. And that is where the kind of art of dog training comes in, as it were. And it's really hard to manualize that aspect of training. It's something that just comes with experience and from training lots of different dogs and kind of seeing where a particular dog is with something that you just know how you have to adjust each particular little thing to help that dog on that specific issue. So it's hard. What I'm going to say is going to sound like you know, do this, then do that, then do this. And it's all going to sound very cut and dried. And that's because I'm trying to give you an overview, but I don't want the overview to sound like a sort of inflexible recipe because that's not what it's intended to be. So with all that said and done, the first thing I would say, if you've got a young HBR breed, versatile dog, you want to be thinking about how much is your dog interested in exploring the world away from you when you're out and about with your dog? And you'll get a kind of sense of this from quite a young age. I mean, you can tell even with some puppies, if they're happy to sort of run some distance away from you and explore stuff, then that gives you a little bit of information on that sort of character trait. But sometimes puppies can just be a little bit insecure and stay near you. But it, as they get older, they start to develop much more independence. And so it's hard if you've got this, if you're seeing this trait in your puppy, don't jump to the conclusion that you've got a, a puppy which naturally wants to stay near you. Because as they get older, that may all change, as particularly as they start to discover game and to be interested in exploring that. So, but this is a sort of general question that you want to ask yourself because it's going to inform a lot of your training. So, does your dog care about where you are? So if you're out with your dog in a rural place, if you, I don't know, change direction and walk in another direction, how long does it take your dog to notice that you've changed direction? How far away from you does your dog range? And how involved do they get with something out there away from you? Are they really, really absorbed in whatever it is? Do they go over things, over walls, through bushes to check stuff out? Are they sort of happy to lose a sort of visual contact with you because they're checking something out away from you? So that's kind of a question that you want to keep in your mind. And the reason that's going to inform your future training, because if you've got a dog which is showing that as a strong trait. They're showing that they really want to go away from you. They really want to explore the environment. Then you've got a dog which is really focused on the environment and focused on hunting and checking stuff out away from you. And you're going to need to work a lot on the you and the dog doing stuff together, connecting together out there in the world. So that might be, for example, frequently stopping and setting up a retrieve, a retrieving exercise. Um, whatever it is you're working on, it could be a blind or it could be directions, whatever that, whatever it is, you're working on something, which is you and the dog working together. And I really like retrieving for that particular reason, because it is you and the dog working together out there in the world. And it's also something which is something that's going to have to do anyway. You know, they're going to have to retrieve game. So it's really great not to do prolonged, extended 
um, quartering or hunting where the dog just progressively loses more and more contact with you as you go on if you've got a dog which has that tendency to explore the environment but if you've got a dog which is the other way around a dog which just is like they just kind of won't go away from you very much and they're not really showing much interest in the environment then you probably need to do a little bit of the opposite you need to kind of do a little bit less of the you and the dog doing stuff together out there in the world you can still do that if you want to if you enjoy training your dog and you want to do stuff you know at home or in your yard, then you can do that kind of thing at home and in your yard, you know, all the obedience stuff that you might like training. But just when you go out into these rural environments where you really want the dog to potentially be hunting in the future, just allow the environment to entice your dog out away from you. Um, But you're always kind of dialing this up and down. So if you notice that your dog is getting too into the environment, then you can do more stuff with you and the dog together, retrieving wise. If you notice that your dog is sticking too close to you, looking at you frequently, just really paying attention to you instead of the environment, then you kind of want to be, you know, interacting with the dog a bit less and letting the environment um, teach the dog how reinforcing it is, as it were. So that's that's one thing to say, and that's kind of a general thing. The next thing to say is about birds. So birds are super important. So often the the first things which the dog starts to find in terms of, um, let's call it prey, as it were, are the, are the things that the dog is going to get really quite into and to find, they're going to start to believe this is the thing that I am here on the earth to to discover. So, you, you know, you don't necessarily want it to be bunnies unless you particularly want to hunt bunnies but you know most of the time you want you want it to be birds another reason that you do want it to be birds instead of ground game is that it's a lot easier to um control your dog which i'll get onto in a minute but it's a lot easier because birds fly away to not end up in a sort of prolonged protracted chase situation so you want to make sure that you've got access to birds and preferably wild birds. Now, there is stuff that you can do with launches and birds in launches, and that can be valuable and that can be great. And that can be there's several points and, and um, stages where the launches can be really useful. But ultimately, there's nothing quite like um, wild game, so wild birds. So you kind of ideally, and I know that we don't all live in an ideal world, that's the kind of thing that you want to be setting up for the dog, taking taking your dog to places where they're going to find birds. How many birds do you want your dog to find? Well, again, that depends very much on your dog. So some dogs, if they're really, you know, driven and keyed and amped up, if you have too much game and the dog finds too much game too quickly, they can their arousal levels can just go through the roof and it can make it very difficult for you to stay in contact with them. And that can make things really difficult. But if you've got a dog which... You know, they just don't have a lot of hunting drive, then they may need to find a much greater quantity of game in order to keep them hunting and believing that there's something out there. So when you're thinking about game, I want you to think about that game as a reinforcer. And I want you to kind of, you know, imagine that there's sausages out there instead of pheasant or something. So, you know, we know from how we use food as a reinforcer generally in training that if we've got a dog which is showing a tendency to give up and to stop working with us, that we need to increase the ratio of the reinforcement. We need to keep the dog um, playing the training games. Right? We need to keep the dog believing that it's it pays to do this. And if the reinforcer gets too um, infrequent or you know too spread out between one reinforcement and another, 
then you may get some dogs which give up. Now, not all dogs are going to give up because some dogs really, 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 really want that thing and they'll keep going, they'll keep going, and they'll keep going because of how much they want that um, reinforcer. So I want you to think about that in relation to game because it's exactly the same. So some dogs, when they're starting out, may need to find quite a lot of game when you're out there in order for them to be motivated to keep looking, keep hunting, and to believe that there's more out there. And other dogs, they especially if they're really driven and they've had a little taster of it, they might not need very much at all to just keep searching and keep hunting and keep looking and keep the faith, as it were. <laughs> keep expecting that they're going to find a reinforcer out there. So so this is another thing that varies very much from one dog to another, and which you kind of need to be aware of. And you know, you can manipulate that to some degree or other, because you might be aware that there are some locations where there's lots of game, and there are other locations where there's just not so much game. So you can you know, pick and choose a particular place depending on your on your dog and what they need in terms of the, the density of the game. Um, so to go back to what I just touched on before about, about birds being much better than ground game to start with, and, you know, apart from the reason that you want to get the dog thinking about the thing that you most want them to find, another reason is that birds fly away. So birds go up in the air and they're unavailable to the dog and the dog can't actually get them most of the time unless they're wounded um, or unless the dog is incredibly fast and the bird is trapped somewhere. But most of the time, the bird just just gets up and flies away and the dog's not able to get the bird. Now, that's not always the case with ground game and ground game, it can just be so tempting and reinforcing when that little fluffy bunny tail is departing away from the dog's nose and that it's just so exciting. So the chase itself can be so much fun. As you'll know, if you've ever, I don't know, played with a dog using a flirt pole and a, and a fluffy tuggy on the end of it, just, just chasing that backwards and forwards on the floor can be so much fun. So if the tuggy or flirt pole or whatever disappears up in the air and unavailable to the dog, well, you've kind of removed that as a reinforcer. So I want you to think about the flushing game in the same sort of way. So that's why ground game is way more exciting than birds, which go up and fly away. Now, having said that, birds are still pretty exciting because the dog can still see them and see them departing in the air. And at first, isn't necessarily going to know they can't get the bird. So they're going to kind of want to have a little chase on that bird at first. So... Your task at first, this is the way that I think about it, is to sort of allow the dog to pursue that bird because that's the only way it's going to learn that it's not going to get the bird. And when you see that the chase is like the dog's like, oh, I'm not going to get this. It's flying away. It's it's going. Um, that's when you would recall the dog. Now, I do recommend to start with that you recall the dog back to you and give them their tasty recall treat instead of trying to get a sit in. And there's a few different reasons for that. So or stop if you don't want the dog to sit, because in North America, you probably just want the dog to stand there in a sort of woe. But the reason why I suggest at first that you start with a recall is the dog at this moment most wants to move. They most want to chase. They most want to be moving their body. And if you can give them another sort of direction to carry out that movement, then you're, you are giving them a better substitute behavior than, than a static sit or stand would be at that time. So you're kind of saying, right, instead of running after that bird, run to me instead, but they're still running. So in that way, it's, it's better. It's better for the dog. The dog wants to move. It's really quite a difficult thing for the dog to be static and be still and watch this exciting thing disappearing away from them. 
it's actually easier for the dog to break off visual contact with that thing that's departing and turn around and come back to you. So that this is an easier stage of training to get the recall in at this point. And what you'll find as you're doing this is your kind of task at this moment is to watch your dog and their interest in the departing bird and to think about when you want to time your recall. So if you if you recall instantly as soon as the bird takes off, your dog probably isn't going to respond at first because they're too interested in the bird and they are still committed to attempting a little bit of a chase. So rather than risk giving your recall and the dog ignoring you, just let the dog, you know, bound a few yards over this after this departing bird, which they can't get anyway. And then when you think that they're kind of, you know, slowing down and they're showing signs of giving up, that's the moment to, to, to do your recall, your recall whistle. And the dog will come back to you, give them a treat. Now, what you'll find is over many reps and as time goes by, that your dog will show less and less interest in chasing birds after they flush because they'll start to learn when they never get these things at this point. So chasing it doesn't chasing doesn't pay off and you will be able to place your recall earlier and earlier in the sequence until eventually what will happen is the bird will fly away and your dog might just take one or two steps, but then you just call the dog back to you and give them a treat. So at this point, what you've got is a bird flying away and a dog instantly connecting to you. Okay, you've got a recall in there as well. But that's in terms of the dog's um, switch of focus. This is what you've got. You've got focusing on the bird, wanting the bird, focusing on my handler, wanting what my handler has and my handler's reinforcer and valuing that. And this is this is what the dog is kind of learning at this point as well, to switch those reinforcers. So when you've got that happening, you can then start to put in your... Um, your remote stop behavior, which may be a sit for some people and it might be a, a woe or stand for some people, which you've been training this behavior separately, by the way. So I'm not going to, in this particular episode, go into how to train it because that, that's an entire episode in itself, which I think we actually have if you want to look back through previous episodes. But let's assume you've trained that away from game and away from distractions and you've got a reliable remote stop behavior already. So you're just pl- plopping it in this scenario. Nothing else about it is new. So you will now start to put in your remote stop at this moment. Instead, your dog might at first start to come back to you because they're just used to their recall whistle at this at this moment. But you can just re-cue it again and walk up to the dog and give them the verbal sit cue if you need to and just make it clear the, the thing that you want. And you've made this shift into this remote stop and this focusing on you at this moment with the departing bird. Now, I know that some of you are going to be thinking, but wait, I want my dog to keep looking at the bird because we're going to shoot the bird and I want the dog to mark where the bird's going to come down. And to those people, you just got to say, hold your horses. Like there's plenty of time to get to that point later on because the dog's going to come to understand the sequence very gradually. And this is a really complicated sequence. Let me just tell you that. And it's particularly complicated if you are in the UK or if you're in a country where you want the dog to flush the game. Because what's going to happen there is... The dog's going to be hunting and hunting and hunting, which is like, go, 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 hunt, 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 look, look, want, want. And then they're going to point, stop and hesitate, hesitate, hesitate. Then you're going to tell the dog, go, get it. And the dog's going to go in hard and try and get it. And then you go, stop, stop trying to get it. (laughs) And the dog's going to stop and give it up and not try and get it. And then it's going to be shot and it's going to fall. And then you've got to be, okay, now go and get it. So this is a ridiculous, ridiculous <laughs> sequence of, of things to be curing, if you think about it. If you've ever seen that video, which went viral um, a while back, I think it was a cattle dog. And I think there was a reinforcer on the floor, like some food or something. And the handler was saying something like, stand up, go backwards, sit down, go backwards, stand up, forward, stop, backwards, forward, stop. 
And then finally, at the end of this massive sequence, the handler was like, okay, you can have the reinforcer. So it always reminds me of that a little bit because it's kind of what you're doing. And you're doing that in a scenario where you actually don't have much control over the reinforcer and you're out there in the real world. Um, And so it's a bit of a crazy sequence that we're talking about here. So we've got to really split this chain down and make sure all the component parts are trained separately and put them together in a very careful way if we want to do this using positive reinforcement and not just um, punishment. So Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. So yes, so all right, what are we talking about? So we've got our we've got our dog sort of going into their remote stop where there's a sit or stand and watching the bird fly off. So we're not shooting the bird at this point, we're just watching the bird fly off. So it's really important that we don't shoot over the dog or move on from this point until the dog is quickly and fluently sitting to the flush of the game. So not sitting to your whistle, your peep, sit, whistle, or if you if you want to stand or woe, they're not just standing because you go woe or because you, you, know, you have any other woe cue. And they're not standing or sitting because you have shot because you're shooting your your starting pistol or your shotgun but they're not there's not a shot cue it's purely the flush of the game so that you want the flush of the game to cue the dog to stop so the dog knows when they hear those wings of the of the of the bird fluttering busting through bushes or whatever that is their cue to sit and this will happen this will happen quite naturally. So I'm not saying don't give your cue. I'm not saying don't give your whistle or don't give your woe. You will at first need to give those. But if you think about it in terms of learning theory, you probably already know about new cue, old cue. If you want to teach the dog a new cue, you give the new cue first and then you give the old familiar cue so that the new cue comes to predict the old familiar cue to the dog and eventually you'll be able to drop out that old familiar cue and you'll have the dog just responding to the new cue. So for example... If you wanted to teach your dog to sit to the word bananas, and when you said bananas, you wanted your dog to sit, you would say bananas, sit, 
click treat. Bananas, sit, click treat. And eventually you would say bananas and the dog would just sit because they're anticipating that you're about to say sit, at which point your dog is starting to learn that bananas means sit. So this is how you attach a new key. Now you've got exactly the same thing happening here because you've got your dog knowing that their whistle means sit. Or if you've already, which I highly recommend, by the way, taught your dog to separately sit to the sound of a shot, you've already got a cue telling the dog to sit. And what's going to happen is you're going to be out with your dog hunting. The first thing you're going to know might be, if your dog is, doesn't point the bird, it might be the um, the rustle of the wings in the bush and the flush of the bird. And then you will be peeping your whistle or going, whoa. And so what you've got there is new cue, old cue. You've got sound of a bird flushing, which is the new cue. And then you've got whistle or woe, which is your old cue. And this sequence is naturally going to repeat itself when you're out hunting. Rustle of the bird and your whistle or your woe. And as your dog gains experience, what you will find is the the kind of rustle of the of the bird will happen and your dog will go into their sit or their stand woe position without you giving your cue. And at that point, your dog is starting to learn that the flush means sit or stand or whatever behavior you want. So I hope that makes some kind of sense. It's it's kind of, um, it's obvious and not obvious at the same time. So what I was saying is it's important not to move on until your dog is really steady. So you want the dog to really like, as soon as something flushes or is flushed to, to go into their, um, their kind of woe or sit position and you want that to be fluent before you ever shoot anything over the dog so if the dog is showing any sign any sign of slowness so for example they're standing there watching the thing flying away and then you're kind of whistling maybe whistling again and then slowly their butt is going to the floor you're not ready to shoot over the dog yet because you know what will happen that stand will become charging in at the thing that falls from the sky as soon as you start to shoot over that dog so you need to make sure that that bum is on the floor quickly it's like flush bum on the floor, flush bum on the floor and or flush stand, flush stand. Like you want to make sure there's not any sort of interest in pursuing that game away. And there's no rush to do this, by the way. So I don't I'm not totally up on all the opportunities that there are for assessing or testing your dogs in North America. But here in the UK, we have spring pointing tests, which are super great because they don't involve cheating over the dogs. So they involve assessing the sort of hunting and the quartering and the pointing and the steadiness side of things. But the game just flies away. So you don't have to put in the last part of things. And they give you stuff to do in these early years where you don't necessarily want to put the whole sequence together very much. So um, there might be other ways and other other forms of assessment or competition where you are, which involve not actually completing the full sequence. And that, that, that's something that's really good to be doing. So don't be in a rush to sort of go right through. And these breeds do mature very slowly, I would say. <laughs> Having owned both Labradors and several HBR breeds, um, I don't think a HBR is really approaching maturity until they're about mm, four or five, maybe. Whereas the Labradors I've known are pretty much approaching maturity or at maturity at the age of two. So it's it's a kind of a very different um, um, rate of maturing growing up. And part of the reason for that is just their brains. <laughs> um, part of the reason for that is that their task, I think, is a lot more complicated. This is a really complicated task. They have to do a lot of sort of go, stop, go, stop, go, stop. And the sequence is a complex sequence. Um, it's not... 
um, quite as straightforward as it is for a retriever. So let's get on. Um, after that, so after that, so you've got your dog sort of sitting and that's happening fluently to the flush. You might yourself be carrying a stunning pistol shotgun and just shoot up in the air and throw something. Just throw a bumper or throw a dock and dummy or throw, I don't know, fur or feather dummy. Just just chuck something. Don't throw it where the dog can get it and be conservative when you start doing this. So you might throw it so it lands near you. So if the dog is not steady, you can pick it up really quickly. And this should not be the first time that you've done this, by the way, because this should be part of your remote stop training. So as you progress with the remote stop training, as you get to the end, you should be able to, you know, fire your shot. The dog sits because they hear the shot or stands because they hear the shot. And then you throw your thing. So this is a familiar thing for the dog. We've just put it in this new sequence of stuff and it's happening kind of in the real world and not where we're just walking around practicing our remote stop kind of thing. So separate to all of this, you ideally want to be doing your retrieving. So you don't want to obviously be leaving all retrieving until you've reached this point with your dog and they're nearly finished on the hunting side of things, but they can't retrieve anything at all. So you want to make sure you've been doing the clicker retrieve and you've got your retrieving really fluent and ideally also on game as well. So if you can pick up on a shoot, that would be great because Picking up doesn't involve doing the hunting side of things. So if you can have your dog at your side and not sort of quartering, not stopping to to shot and not doing all the whole pointing, all of that side of things, you just got them going and bringing back some game, then that's perfect. If you don't, if you're not lucky enough to be able to pick up on a shoot, then you want to just get some cold game and just make sure that your dog is able to retrieve um, cold game and that you know this is something that they're familiar with. And you can start to sort of throw that, but you're not going to send the dog for the retrieve at this point in your hunting sequence. It's important to point that out. So you're going to, you've got your dog there, they're steady to the flush of the bird. You fired your shot in the air, not at the bird, and you throw in your, your thing, whatever it is. And then while your dog remains there in their sit stay or stand stay, you're going to walk out and pick up the thing that you threw. And then you're going to walk and release the dog. So you might probably want to walk right back to the dog at first and release the dog. I tend to find that if you, the, the key here is to not have any anticipation. So you don't want the dog anticipating that they're going to be sent for that retrieve. And this is a really tricky thing to avoid and to continue to avoid, even once the dog gets really experienced, because the dog will, given one too many opportunities, learn that this, 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 Stuff happens, something shot, something falls from the sky, and I go get it. And before you know what's happened, the dog's decided, hey, I'm just going to skip out the waiting bit and I'm just going to go and get it by myself, okay? So when it falls from the sky, just go get it. And even if they were steady originally, you can lose that steadiness really easily. And that is the result partly of how much they want that thing, but also anticipation. They anticipate that they're going to be sent. So as always in all dog training, and again, this is another way you can connect this with some other things that you might already know. If you've ever done competition obedience and you've ever had to do those positions like the sit, stand and the down, you can be really <laughs> careful because the dog will start to do it all on autopilot. They'll, they know this, the order of things. They know if they're doing a sit, stand or down or down, stand and a sit, for example, if there's a sequence that you're practicing and they will start to predict, anticipate and offer you a, a position before you've even cued it. And obviously then you lose lots of points. Um, not that I know much about competition obedience, it has to be said, but this is the same thing that potentially can happen in, in gun dog work is that the dog can anticipate the position, um, sorry, not the position, the behavior that 
that you're you are going to cue them to do next which is retrieve and we don't want them to anticipate that so at first you'll always walk out and pick up the object itself and then once your dog can do all of that and you feel that it's really reliable and really fluent then you at first i recommend walk back to them and send them for the um short game but not from a, a remote distance you'd kind of walk yourself to them so that they don't have you know they're not they have to stay there for a while basically whilst you're walking back to them because this is going to help confound that anticipation so any stuff that you can get in between thing falling from the sky and dog being sent is going to is going to help stop that anticipation from setting in so for example i do know someone who used to just make his dog sit there he probably still does for several minutes he used to get his watch out and time I think it was three to five minutes of the dog sitting there in a sit stay before he would go and send the dog for the retrieve. And if the dog was not steady and moved, then he would get that retrieve and the, the, the handler would get the retrieve and would, the dog would not get it. So the dog learnt, I'm just going to sit here, keep sitting here. It's probably going to be for ages. And it was longer than it would ever be in a real life situation. So in that way, he trained way beyond what he ne- was going to need in competition. So that it was going to be really sort of reliable bulletproof behavior in competition because he'd exceeded that he'd exceeded what he needed in training as it were um sometimes you you know you might want to i don't know walk back to the dog ask the dog to walk at heel away from the thing that fell from the sky that would be particularly cruel and difficult but you know things like this which which are confounding the expectation what you don't want to do is the thing falls from the sky and you send the dog really quickly because that is going to set up that expectation really easily for the dog so once you've got all of that working, ta-da, you should have a trained dog. You don't want to put your retrieving and your hunting together very frequently, even once you've you've kind of got it working. You just want to make sure this works. And this is particularly the case if you want to compete with your dog. You just want to make sure that this works. And if I send the dog for the retrieve, they can do it and they will do it. But most of the time, I'm going to send another dog maybe to get the retrieve. If you've got another dog with you that someone else you're working with, if you've got a dog at heel, um, you can send another dog to do the retrieve part. So that will help the dog that is steady, not, you know, um, anticipate what's going to happen. Um, or you can just walk out yourself and, and pick it. But once you know that you can rely on this happening, then you want to do all you can in an ongoing way to confound expectation anticipation and to make sure the dog doesn't learn it's possible to get the thing if they're unsteady. Once they've learned that, it's it's a really hard thing to get out of. So I hope that that kind of helps explain how things fit together, because I think that that is something which people find a little bit difficult. I haven't really touched on the pointing side of things very much here. That is a really complicated one, the pointing thing. We could probably talk about that for many episodes by itself. And I think it's also complicated because the approach to it and, and the the points of view when it comes to training are very different in different countries. So the UK and I think most of Europe is is much more relaxed in terms of um, the dog pointing and when the dog is allowed to move out of a point. So the dog will often point and then might believe that the game has moved on. So the dog might then, of their own accord, relocate on the game and point again. And in other countries that may be considered not holding the point and breaking the point and they might the dog might be out at that time because 
it's a little bit treat is treated a little bit in those countries like a stay. Like once the dog has come onto point, they're then in a stay and they shouldn't move unless they're cued to move by the handler. Whereas in Europe, things are a lot more relaxed and the dog is given a lot more of the the sort of um, I don't know how to put it, the onus to make the decision for themselves about when to move in and out of point. Um, obviously, they shouldn't flush game by themselves. They should only flush game on cue. But if the dog, the dog's also given a lot of leeway or tends to be given more leeway, I get the feeling, in terms of um, trying to work out where the game is and accidentally um, bumping game because they were on the wrong side of the wind and that sort of thing, tends to be a little bit more leeway given. So, especially for younger, inexperienced dogs. Um, so yes, it's there is a different. There's a different sort of way of talking about or thinking about the pointing side of things, which makes it a particularly difficult subject to address. So, um, I hope that that helps people think about this because I think it's easy to kind of um, for people either not to think about the sequence and how it gets put together and what the dog is learning from the sequence, whether you intend to be teaching it to them or not. And or to get bogged down the nitty gritty of specific behaviors like this is how we train the retrieve or this is how we train the remote stop or this is how we train, um, I don't know, the woe if you're in North America. But and then not to really understand how it all fits together and how the package of go stop, go stop works. And by the way, the go stop thing is a little bit easier, I think, in North America because dogs there will, will not do the flush. So they will go, 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 stop continue to stop during the flush and the fall and then go. So it's, there's less go, stop, go, stop, go, stop, go stuff there. <laughs> so I think that's a little easier um, on the dog. But yes, anyway, I hope that's been useful for people in terms of thinking about how to approach training this. Hold the line. So I'm going to have a, another ask me anything kind of episode soon. So if you have any questions yourself about anything to do with any subgroup of Gundog, drop me an email. Uh, my email is joe, J-O, at forcefreegundog.com. That's J-O at forcefreegundog.com. And then once we've got enough kind of questions together, we will have an episode. And if we get like sort of questions which are on a, on a similar theme we might kind of have themed episodes to answer the questions so anyway drop me any questions that you have joe at forcefreegundog.com have a great week everybody and i'll talk to you next time on the line.